Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Bogart in the Wardrobe. Today we will be discussing Rowling's misdirections in this chapter, the meaning of the Bogart and its many forms, and how Neville's character journey progresses. So the chapter begins in potions class. Malfoy is taking advantage of his so-called injury, and he convinces Snape to have his classmates do his work for him, intentionally sitting with Harry and Ron so that he can humiliate them. While he's doing this, Malfoy takes the opportunity to taunt the trio, specifically Harry, insinuating that if he were in Harry's position, he would be going after Sirius Black himself. And Harry has no idea what Malfoy's talking about. Harry and Ron then grow more suspicious of Hermione after class when she seemingly disappears for a few moments, but then her bag splits as a distraction. In Defense Against the Dark Arts, Professor Lupin takes the class to the staff room, where a bogart, a creature that takes the shape of whatever the attacker fears most, is trapped in a wardrobe. Lupin teaches the class that laughter is the key to defeating a bogart, and that they have to think of a way to make their greatest fear funny. Neville goes first, and to make his greatest fear, Professor Snape, funny, he pictures Professor Snape wearing his grandmother's clothes. Eventually, almost every student in the class gets to go at the Boggart, except Harry and Hermione. When it's about to be Harry's turn, Lupin steps in to take his place. Harry's frustrated at being left out, and he thinks Lupin thinks that he, Harry, is too fragile to handle the spell. Alright, so we have a lot of really cool things that we can talk about in this chapter, Mm -hmm. but first I want to start with something that's really not cool, um, which is Snape's behavior towards Neville in this this first scene. Um, So I I just want to talk about that. Like, can can you like walk me through like what he does and why it's so horrible? So basically what he does is Neville, they're in whatever potion they're working on, Neville is clearly... Yeah, it's a shrinking solution. Yeah, so Neville is always very nervous in potions class mm-hmm. because he is so scared of Snape. And so he sees that Neville's potion is not going well, per usual. Um, and he then says that um, if Neville's potion is not correct by the end of the class, he's going to feed the shrinking solution to Neville's toad. Um and then basically see what happens because mm-hmm. his potion could be incorrect and could, you know, make the toad explode or something. Yeah, um, he said it could it could very well poison him yes. if it's made incorrectly. And so then Hermione secretly is like whispering out of this corner of her mouth instructions to Neville. Um, and Snape realizes or decides that Neville couldn't have done that himself, which of course is true. And so he then completely ridicules Neville at the end of class. Yeah. So I I always think about this. I'm always drawn back to this moment whenever I think about Snape's um, personality, maybe, um, because there, there is a lot of debate in the Harry Potter community about, you know, the character of Snape. I think he's one of the more interesting characters to talk about. Um, and we'll certainly have more opportunities, but I always, my mind is always drawn back to this scene mm-hmm. um, because I think it's very telling. You know, we have a kid who's struggling and he's really not doing well. And somehow Snape justifies in his mind that the way he's going to try to motivate this student to do better mm. is threatening the life of his toad and basically saying like, if you don't do it right, I'm going to kill your toad in front of the whole class. Right. Um, and, 
you know, it, it's horrible. The kid's 13 years old. He's already scared out of his mind at, at you. Um, and, you know, he, he doesn't even really give him the opportunity to fix it. He just says, like, you'd better fix it and nobody help him. You, know, like, right. you have to do this on your own. And clearly Neville isn't somebody that's motivated by fear. No. Because we see that it doesn't work. He basically has to completely rely on Hermione's help. Um, I mean, he does make the potion correctly, but it is basically Hermione working through Neville. Yeah. At the end. So it, it doesn't work. And Snape isn't triumphant at the end like a good teacher would be when he sees that it was done correctly. Instead, he's just scornful. Because he's just like, oh, you could never have done it. So he's giving Snape, I mean, he's giving Neville no uh, chance to. Yeah. And, and because of that, because he knows, like, if the potion is correct, Neville didn't do it. Yeah. That tells us that he doesn't actually want to teach Neville anything. Of course not. He's not trying. Like, even if you look at it with the best possible lens, like he's trying to motivate Neville to be better at potions, that's not what's happening here. No, because he doesn't care. when the outcome is correct, he's like, this was not you. You did not do this. Yeah. So Snape is literally just bullying Neville and trying to kill his toad. He is. And I think that, you know, we'll talk a lot more about Snape's character as we go, but I think that it's important to come back to this moment and think about, um, you know, this is the cl- a classic example of the bullied being coming the bullier and using someone who's the most vulnerable. Like, he's already a teacher. He's an adult. These are children. Yeah. He's already, like, mean to basically everyone, but mm-hmm. he's finding the most vulnerable out of his students to bully yeah. in a way that is specifically mean. and It's predatory, really. Yes. It's not not cool. And no. he also then tells, as we'll see later, he tells Professor Lupin in this chapter, like, oh, be careful with Neville, basically. Like, Neville can't do anything. And then we see how Lupin responds, which is to have confidence in Neville and actually make him go first yeah. and show him that he can do things and kind of overcome some fear. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But we see the stark difference in teachers styles i do want to come back to that later because we can talk about how lupin is a good teacher and compare the two um but then more about this potion scene so we have this really really important scene of malfoy talking about sirius black to harry um when i was reading this i was thinking about you know how strange the scene is because it's a very weird and not normal power dynamic between the two Mm -hmm. um and i think that's the only way that this conversation could have happened really um, because normally I think if Malfoy is sort of baiting Harry, like he usually does with stuff like this, you know, Malfoy, Harry and Ron just kind of say, shove off Malfoy and they yeah. walk away. Right. Um, and then Malfoy is powerless. He can't stop them. Yeah. So to get Malfoy, Harry and Ron in a scene together and have them be in a place where they can't run away mm-hmm. and Malfoy has the, the, the power to make them listen to him. I think Rowling actually orchestrated a whole bunch of events to get that to happen. Um, maybe even including like Buckbeak injuring Malfoy specifically like mm. the, in the previous chapter just so that we could have an injured Malfoy come into class and he could sit with them in, in an effort to humiliate them um, and then like basically force them to listen to him right. while he's talking. Yeah, I mean, I, it is interesting to think about all the things that had to have happened in order for him to get there and I wonder how much Rowling did uh, set up in order to was this scene so important because it is so important harry needs to get the idea that there's um a reason for him to want to go after sirius right so thinking more about 
even farther back of what had to happen. How do we think exactly Malfoy knows about Sirius being responsible for the death of Harry's parents? So I know we talked about, like, what does Arthur know and other things in the past. And I'm sure that Malfoy hears rumors at his house. I'm sure there's Mm -hmm. a lot of rumors going around. But it's a little bit surprising to me then that Ron or Hermione would not know as well or some other Gryffindor. Like, it's surprising to me that um, Malfoy would know and no one else knows if this is being kept secret in this way. You know what I mean? I think it's not really being kept secret. So I think we have to basically backtrack on what we've previously said. Yeah. I think we were wrong when we said that Arthur wouldn't have known about it. Yeah. Um. I think I think Arthur does definitely know. He just doesn't let on that he knows. Right. Um, and I think that he doesn't talk about it in front of his kids, which is why they don't know. Yeah. But I think Lucius definitely knows. I think it's pretty much common knowledge among people that were adults 13 years ago when mm-hmm. it happened or 12 years ago, whatever. Um, and I think... I think if you were to take a survey of basically all the adults that Harry knows that are wizards, they would all know. And okay. Malfoy knows because Lucius basically tells him everything. Yeah, and he doesn't care. And he doesn't care what Malfoy knows, what Draco knows, yeah. or doesn't know. Um, so he just lets him in on it. Um, and it's also kind of... I, I, I would suspect that Lucius would think it's funny, too. Oh, yeah. Because Lucius would know the truth that actually it was Wormtail who was the spy. Mm-hmm. And that Sirius Black basically just took the fall. Um, and so he's probably, you know, sitting in his manner talking about how funny it is that, like, everyone thinks Sirius Black is the murderer. Right. But I think that Malfoy probably doesn't know the full, full truth. No, he doesn't know that much. I think he really does think that. But it's interesting to consider, though, right? Because we see him in this scene basically trying to goad Harry into going after Black. So either one is possible, right? Yes, that's true. Yeah, it could be that he does really think Sirius Black killed his parents, in which case he's just goading him. Right. Or it could be like a, you know, kind of a double cross. He could be like, like extra sneaky. Like mm-hmm. he knows that Wormtail is the real culprit, but he's trying to goad Harry into going after Black anyway, mm-hmm. just to see what would happen. You know? Yeah, it's possible. It's interesting. Yeah. So I, I do wonder what Malfoy knows. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to find out. But um, yeah, it's interesting to think about. So before we get to some more details about Rowling's writing in this chapter, I just wanted to do a quick peeves sidebar. So (laughs) there is actually a a sort of transition scene in between when they're coming from potions class and going to Defense Against the Dark Arts. Yeah. And, um, well, actually, they've just gotten to Defense Against the Dark Arts, and Lupin says, we're leaving classroom, we're going to the staff room, follow me, basically. And all the class is walking out behind him. So Peeves um, is hanging out in one of the hallways. And um, we'll get to what Peeves says to Lupin in a second. But I was... They seem to be quite familiar with each other. Yeah. And also, you know, teachers are, are in the Hogwarts are usually either extremely irritated or annoyed with Peeves or just, like, you know, completely ignore him, mm-hmm. sort of sometimes laugh it off. But he and Lupin seem to be sort of, like, on okay terms, as okay terms <laughs> as you can be with Peeves. Um, yeah. It's hard to explain. But do you do you think that's true? I mean, do you I do. get that sense? I, I think it is true. Um, I think Lupin does kind of understand Peeves a little yeah. better than most other professors. But also, I think Lupin is just an incredibly tolerant person in that's general. True. It, yeah. it takes a, a lot to really raise his ire. Yeah. Um, and we never actually see it happening until the end of this book. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think it's basically just like Lupin's a really tolerant 
guy. And yeah. they've probably had run-ins before, and Lupin kind of gets his whole M.O. Right. Of it's just like, you know, he exists to cause mischief and mayhem. Well, one thing and, I was thinking... And Lupin used to do that, too. So. Yeah, and but one thing I was thinking was that because of Lupin sneaking out um, with the Marauders, but also specifically because of, you know, his being a werewolf, I wonder if he and Peeves have some sort of understanding of knowledge and they have spent time interacting with each other at night in the castle in some way um yeah, I, I think probably because uh one of the thing that peeve says to lupin is he calls him loony loopy lupin yeah which uh i because i was curious i looked into this loony comes from the word lunatic yeah which itself comes from the latin root luna mm-hmm. and lunatic originally used to mean that some it's like a person who was crazy but only when the moon was full Mm-hmm. Which basically, in in wizard terms, is a werewolf, right? A person who right. transforms into a crazy person when the moon's full. So I think we can probably say that Beavs definitely knows, and you know, doesn't probably doesn't have a lot of motivation for revealing it, at least. But they they have some, you know, understanding with each other. Yeah, they they definitely seem to have some understanding, and. I don't like. I don't think Peeves is pleased when Lupin shoots the wad of gum up his nose, <laughs> but he, he's probably also like, yeah, respect. Yeah, you know, that's a cool spell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I always love pointing these out. Um, these little misdirections by J.K. Rowling, and the first one we have in this chapter is about Hermione. So when they're leaving potions class to go to Defense Against the Dark Arts, Ron is complaining about something to Hermione because she lost them house points for getting the potion right somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and just when Ron is like complaining, he like turns around and she's gone. And and then she's at the bottom of the stairs coming up behind them. Mm-hmm. And he's like, wait, what? You were you were just next to me. Right. How'd that happen? And then Hermione's bag splits. Yes. So this is like a, a literary um, misdirection, basically. It, it's supposed to confuse the reader because we were just talking about this one idea that wasn't even voiced, which is that, like, Hermione just, like, disappeared and reappeared. Right. Um, and now we're talking about something else, which is, why does she have so many books in her bag? Right. Um, and so I, I thought this was a really cool trick. I mean, it doesn't completely distract us from the central idea, which is, like, something weird's going on with Hermione. Yeah, because she doesn't need that many books. That's why her bag splits. Right. It does distract us from the central question, though. Yes, yes. And it misdirects us to this other question, which is also interesting, but which could have a mundane explanation, whereas mm-hmm. this other thing doesn't. Right. I think it is a good misdirection. I think it might have even been better if something else had happened, so, like, a different character had come in with something urgent so that Hermione wasn't even involved, because in, in a way this is drawing more attention to it, but I guess yeah. it could also be um, even better this way as well, because it's kind of trying to give give an explanation for the weirdness of what just happened because you know oh something was going on with her bag and you know you could you could sort of justify like oh i see yeah she got slow and then her bag was splitting and she wasn't next to them anymore you know it doesn't really make sense but it could be like giving some sort of explanation for the moment i'll buy that and then the other one we have in this chapter is um about lupin so when they're battling the boggart uh, Lupin steps forward when he sees that Harry is next, and the bogger transforms into a white silvery orb. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lupin, you know, casts Ridiculous and it goes away. Um, and then Parvati, after class, is like wondering aloud. She's like, I wonder why Lupin's afraid of crystal balls. And that 
in itself is another distraction. Because if we didn't have something to glom onto, we might actually wonder about that. Right. Instead, we have this idea that's put forward and we have no reason to assume that it's not correct. So Mm -hmm. we just go with it. Um, But if she hadn't said that, we might wonder, what is that silvery orb? Maybe it's the moon. And it's sort of related to the idea of divination. Like we're already thinking about that. Right, we're already thinking about that. You know, it could be related to something related to the future and the creepiness of that. So there's, it is a really good distraction Mm -hmm. and we don't question or have the idea that this is the full moon for sure. And it's also a good distraction because we'll see later that Lupin doesn't like divination or seers. Mm -hmm. Like Trelawney asks to read his fortune and he positively sprints away. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that in itself is a, is a good misdirect because then we start to wonder like, why is he so scared? Why is he afraid of the future or whatever? But really it's not that it's that he doesn't want her to figure out what he is. Right. Um, because it would become very obvious if she looked at him, like, you know, as if she were a real seer, which I think she is, if she looked at him, she would realize very quickly that he's not a person, he's a werewolf. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a good distraction. I, I like the writing of that very much. Definitely. So backtracking to what we just mentioned about Neville, um, continuing on with his character in this chapter. So we talked about how Lupin does not... Lupin, instead of scolding him for saying Snape is his greatest fear, especially since Snape was just in the staff room and they just had this little interaction where Snape said basically, like, don't count on Neville to do anything to Lupin. Um, He brings Neville to the front and says, you're going to be my test subject, basically. I'm going to have you go first. And he asks for his greatest fear. Neville says that probably because it's definitely on his mind and that is his greatest fear right now. Um, Mm -hmm. instead of doing that, he encourages him to make it funny and make it humiliating. And when this is one of his coworkers, but he knows that Snape is a bully because he knows Snape and he's totally fine with that. And it's a good example. Um, and he really doesn't say anything about, oh, we should use a, use another person or something. Right. And, and I think that it's really telling that in the face of Snape directly telling him, uh, you know, Neville is a liability and don't rely on him for anything. Um, and he even like pokes fun at the fact that Neville needs Hermione to tell him what to do. Lupin doesn't like even acknowledge that. He's like, hmm, well, I was going to have Neville be like the person who I relied on the mm-hmm. most in, right. this, in this lesson. And he does. Um, and so he, Lupin himself is kind of standing up to Snape in that moment too. He really is. And I mean, the confidence and power that he gives Neville back when he's constantly being brought down by a lot of people in his life, and especially Snape, Mm -hmm. um, is really important. And, you know, that, I think this moment, along with some scenes in book one and then scenes that will come up in the future, is a big indicator of sort of what Neville will become as someone who is competent, confident, and really, you know, part a huge hero later on definitely and probably this moment is something that um neville goes back to in his mind and draws strength from right Right. yeah i agree um you know when when harry told neville that he was worth 12 of malfoy Mm -hmm. we thought that was really a defining moment in in the first book Mm -hmm. for neville's character and we see here you know after neville just had the most humiliating potions class of his life Mm -hmm. being brought back up by another teacher and, and given confidence and power um, really changes him, I think, and, and makes does. him more confident as a person. And so this is why 
you know, this is a comparison of how Lupin is a great teacher. So we see, compared to Snape, they're completely on opposite extremes, but what he does, because he's not a bully, and he doesn't feel that he needs to uh, make himself feel superior to his children's students, um, that's, you know, the baseline. But he takes a student who's clearly very self-conscious and also just, in general, prone to mistakes and accidents and, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe struggles more than some other kids in school. Um, He brings him to the front, encourages him, basically tells him that he can do it, and then he does. And that's, you know, what a great teacher does is to not write off the students that seem to be struggling. Yeah. And I think it's it's more than, than just teaching, too. He's not just an instructor. He's a mentor to these students, mm-hmm. too. He wants them – he wants to give them the tools that they need to become, you know, good wizards in yeah. the future. It's not just, like, about what they learn in class. It's about – giving them confidence, giving them, you know, the ability to speak in front of a group of people, giving them the ability to feel like they know what to do, giving them tools Mm -hmm. to interact with society and the world. And I think that's part of why he focuses on magical creatures in this whole year. It's mostly just how do you deal with Kappas or Mm -hmm. Grindylows or Boggarts. Um, It's because, you know, these are pretty rare things that you're not really going to run into that much. But he's like, this is a very tangible you know, area. And I can cover pretty much the whole gamut of it in this one year. Um, I can prepare you for situations where you run into creatures. Right. Um, And and he's basically just trying to give them tools. And Harry thinks about this a lot when he's the de facto defense against the dark arts teacher in his fifth year. Mm -hmm. He basically wants to emulate Lupin as a teacher and as a mentor. Yeah. And I think that this also, we're, we're about to transition into talking specifically about Bogarts, but I think that that's also why this lesson is such a great first lesson is because he's um, taking their fears seriously in a way, like he's validating mm-hmm. their fears, but he's also saying, look, here's a way that we can make them go away, make them silly. And even though that may not be the case in real life when you encounter these greatest fears, it's it's building up this positive experience of confidence against your fears and yeah. allowing them to get that moment of triumph. And and he's not telling them, here's how to make this thing silly. You know, with everybody except Neville, he basically just says, use your own creativity right. yeah. and come up with whatever you think will make this funny um, and we'll try it out. You right. know? And because these kids are so young and their brains are so malleable and creative – it really works and and all of them except basically Harry and later Hermione are pretty capable of coming up with ways to make things funny. Yeah. So that is a good transition into talking about Boggarts. So I think we've pretty much covered all this already, but Boggarts don't have a form until mm-hmm. they're observed. And I thought this was actually very similar to fear itself as a concept. So fear is like this thing that actually doesn't have any power over you at all unless you give it power, unless you feed it. Right. So it's something that, you know, the Bogart is this shapeless form and it's like this, just the idea of fear and what you, what it could possibly, you know, be a monster in the dark almost in a way. And whatever you give power to is what it will become. And that's true with fear itself. If you give a lot of power and you give a lot of thought into your fears, then it will grow and it will become something scarier than it really is. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting that every student that we see in this chapter, um, kind of including Lupin too, I guess, 
um, has such a concrete fear that's so easily represented by mm-hmm. something visual. Um, and I think that's especially true at an age like 13 where you're more childlike and you haven't really interacted that much with the real world, hopefully. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about, like, what would our Bogarts be um, in, our, in our own lives? And I think mine would be much more conceptual and harder to represent with, like, real, uh, you know, visual images. Yeah, I think, I mean, we can talk about what that would be. I think if I really thought about it, I my biggest fear would be something that was not that concrete. But I can immediately think of some things that are concrete and could be represented and are in this way greatest fear. So mine would probably be being buried alive. Right. Um, and so I would probably, there would probably be some image of like, you know, someone in a coffin or trying to be breaking out, something like that. But I wonder how a bugger would represent that. Being I know it's alive. hard because it's you really, would be in it. Yeah. It, it's really like you being buried alive. It's not someone else being buried alive. As scary as that is. I know. I wonder if the bugger would put you in a situation because all of these ones that we see in the examples are them being faced with some sort of monster basically mm-hmm. or something outside of them that's scary right like does the bugger actually have the ability to trap you in a situation yeah. or is it more just like it can turn into forms right because if it's the latter I, I i'm not sure how that would get expressed and for me it's similar like i have a fear of heights really it's a fear of falling to my death so like would the bogger represent like me falling off a cliff right and like how is that possible you know what i mean and then yeah. how would i make that funny i guess i would maybe like you know attach myself to a hang glider or something yeah. and then just fly away right um but again it, that's that's sort of more um giving broader power to the bogger than what we see here which is it just taking, yeah taking it is interesting uh, it's very you know not it's not very explained it's not something that ever we ever really come back to in the series and so yeah. i i think it would be super interesting to study the bach art or oh, yeah. learn more about it or i hope it's something they study in the department of mysteries because I, yeah. they should if they don't and it's sort of also like a not really this but sort of like a schrodinger's cat situation where it's like you can't you know if you look at it right. it's like once you look at it it's altered by you looking at it does that make any sense yeah you'd have to get quantum physicists to study yeah it quantum because, physicists uh, like because they know that if you do the double slit experiment it's both a particle and a wave yeah right so a bogart is both incorporeal and corporeal until you observe it but there's no way to know th- there's no way to know um what the bogart looks like when no one's observing it basically exactly so then we get to harry mm-hmm. who um, with Hermione, they're, I think, the only named characters that don't get to interact with the Bogart in this chapter. Um, and so why is Harry left out, and why does he think that he's being left out? And how do, how is that significant here? So Harry thinks that he's being left out because he is... Because he thinks Lupin thinks he's too sensitive or fragile because, you know, Lupin saw him faint, and everyone, everyone's so... Um, He's had a lot of times where everyone's thinking he's really fragile and, like, needs to be protected and Sirius is after him and all this. And so he feel that's his, like, defensive mode right now. He feels like everyone thinks that he just can't handle anything scary. I think it's important to note, too, that it's because he thinks he's about to face the Dementor again. Right. And Lupin saw him do that and saw him pass out. Right. 
So Harry, in Harry's mind, it's like, oh, Lupin doesn't think I can handle even a Boggart Dementor. This is a total fallacy that Harry's created because in his mind, he's about to face the Dementor, right? But Lupin assumed that Harry was about to bring Lord Voldemort into the room. Right. And he was afraid that that would frighten everybody a little yes. too much for what was essentially a school exercise. Yes. Um, and so, he was concerned about basically everyone else and not Harry. Yeah. I mean, it's scary to Harry, too, yeah. I'm sure. But, um, you know, I think Lupin is being really smart here and not letting mm. Harry interact with it. And I think Harry's being a bit of an idiot, too. He's so sensitive about this now. Mm-hmm. This whole subject of, like, people thinking that I'm sensitive and fragile um, has gotten so convoluted that now Harry can't even imagine, like, why someone might not want his boggart to show up in front of a whole class of people. Right. And, like, you know, to your point, he did think about Lord Voldemort for a second, and then he thought about the Dementor, and he realized that was what he was more afraid of. Mm -hmm. Um, But he doesn't even remember (laughs) that later when he comes back to this. It never occurs to him that, like, maybe other people would have thought they'd be facing Lord Voldemort too. Yes. Um, So it's pretty stupid from Harry's point of view, I think. Yeah, so why why do we think that Harry fears the Dementors more than Voldemort? That's a really good question. I think I think it really has to do with this very human fear of things that we don't understand mm-hmm. or things that we feel like we don't have any defense to. Um, and for Harry, this is really the reality of his life right now. Voldemort, unfortunately, is a known entity. He's faced right. Voldemort at least three times, two that he remembers. Um, and the Dementors are not. He's only faced one, and he doesn't really remember anything about it because he passed out almost immediately. And he felt differently. I mean, he feels terrified and he feels the pain in his scar when he sees Voldemort, but it's almost um, a known, like you said, it's like known pain, known feelings, a known terror of like, this is someone that's going to kill me. I know why I'm scared, but right. the Dementor doesn't make any sense. And it's non-human. And I think that actually is a big part of it, too. Like, Harry doesn't quite understand what Dementors are, what they do, what their power is, how to defeat them. You know, Voldemort is ultimately a human. And so, you know, humans can be defeated. Humans, you know, you can cast spells at them and you can kill them, sort of. Um, But, you know, this is a different beast. And so it's going to take Lupin's specific tutelage for Harry to be able to overcome this fear, because right now... All he can think about when he thinks about a Dementor is how much of it is still unknown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Hermione also does not face the Bogart, which is interesting and just seems maybe like an oversight on Lupin's part, or just they tech really did run out of time. Um, although it is a little bit strange because everybody else besides Harry, who he clearly has a motive for not letting go. Um mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of strange that Hermione's isn't in there, but it's another probably um, way for Rowling to protect her secret. Yeah, I think that's part of it. But I think the other part of it, too, is that Lupin's afraid that her Boggart might also be, like, really creepy or really, like, shocking to everybody, too, um, because he knows that she's using the time turner to go to multiple classes. So there could be, like, a thing of, like, uh, Hermione's Boggart could be, like, her traveling through time in a in a way that like creates uh, an unstable time loop mm. or like causes her to accidentally kill herself or something. Oh yeah, because he knows all of her professors know. Yeah, all yeah. of her professors know about this, and so, or in theory, they do, I guess. Um, and so it, I think he's a little worried that she too might 
be a little too scary for the rest of the class to deal with or even her to deal with. Yeah, that's true. And I wonder, you know, what do we think her bog art would be at this moment? So that's what I thought. Yeah, would would be like a weird some, time. Some loop. weird time turner mistake. Or being found out, but I, I don't know if being found out would be the worst thing or if it's something else with being stuck in some time yeah. warp. So that's what we would think, right? But then what actually happens at the end of the book is that Hermione's Boggart is McGonagall telling her that she failed all of her classes. Right. <laughs> so it's a little more mundane than we were led it to is. initially believe. Um, and it's a, a lot more low stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's funny is that you know, calm, rational Hermione cannot deal with that. No. At all. She freaks out and, like, leaves the exam. Um, and it's the only non-perfect exam that she's ever had mm-hmm. at Hogwarts. So it's uh, pretty telling, I think. Yeah, and maybe um, that is partially Lupin's fault because he didn't give her any chance to practice. Right. Um, or, like, other people had their thoughts in mind about what they were going to do. But she just saw something that she didn't know what she would see already and she had to try to handle it in the moment um but i think for her it is interesting because hers is one of the more realistic in a way fears (laughs) even if it's not um as bad as the others right but it's something that truly would be terrifying to her and in theory could happen um even if we very unlikely for hermione but um, maybe she doesn't know how to make that funny either because it feels like too real in a way. Yeah. But, you know, I think you you should be able to be creative about that. I mean, Neville was able to make Snape funny, you know, yeah. at Lupin's suggestion. But, you know, at first glance, you wouldn't necessarily think to put Snape in his gram- in Neville's grandmother's clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you might think like, wow, how do you make Snape funny? Right. Um, but he came up with something, so... You know, maybe she could put um, McGonagall in Dumbledore's clothes or something. I don't know. I don't know. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and the Bogart in the Wardrobe. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially Bogarts and how they work, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at www.theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we run away from Chapter 8, The Flight of the Fat Lady. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.